Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 160, and on today's show, it's all about JavaScript, single-page apps, human ways of coding. We're talking to Henrik Jorteg, the author of a book called Human JavaScript, and also a non-framework, frameworky framework for JavaScript called Ampersand.js. If you haven't heard of it, you got to check it out. We talked about that, single-page apps. WebRTC. We even touched a little bit on HTTP2, so you'll enjoy that piece there. We have three awesome sponsors for this show, CodeShip, TopTal, and also DreamHost. Our first sponsor is CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability for you and your team. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy your code when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub, and your Bitbucket projects, and you can get started today with CodeShip's free plan. Should you decide to go with a premium plan, you can use our code to save 20% off any plan you choose for three months. The code is the ChangeLaw Podcast. Again, that will get you 20% off any plan you choose for three months. Head to CodeShip.com slash TheChangeLaw to get started, and now on to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. Got a great show for you today. One we've been planning on for a bit. Uh, we've got Henrik Yorteg on the call today, developer at Anyet, JavaScript, well-known, well-speaking. I mean, you're, <laughs> you, you, how many talks have you given this year alone? Oh, sheesh. Uh, I don't know. This year's been kind of busy. It's probably been four or five or something. Four or but... five. And, and so you're sort of, you got this one talk that you've been kind of doing a few times, or is it several different talks you're doing? Uh, it's a lot of the same messaging, but I try to evolve it a little bit each time just because otherwise it gets boring and I get bored of giving it. So. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> and then you die. Which is and then you, I die, yeah. And you die. Sure. It's an inside joke from one of your talks, but uh, we've got <laughs> yeah, Jared on the line here as well. Jared, what's up, buddy? Excited to talk some more JavaScript. I know our loyal listeners love, love, love the JavaScripts. So here we yeah. are. What, is, what is this JavaScript thing you speak of? Um, Good question. It's it's some interesting thing on the web. I don't know. We'll find yeah. out, I guess. All right. Well, this is right up Jared's will camp or uh, wheelhouse. You know, not so much that it's not mine, but you know, Jared, you're you went to NGConf not long ago. Um, what what other conferences have you gone to recently that were around JavaScript? Uh, Space City JS with right. you that's, that's in true. Houston. That's true. Houston. Oh, okay. I'm also helping organize Forgot the Nebraska JS Conf uh, this summer as well. Uh, speaking of conferences, Henry, you got a conference coming up. Yeah, we're doing one called uh, Real Time Conf. Uh, it's one that we did a few years ago, and we took a little break, and we said we'd never do it again, and uh, we are. <laughs> so it's just kind of about like a lot of real time web technologies, and and really kind of trying to be a little bit more uh, thinking about what the web should be and what we should be working on, rather than just the stuff that we could be doing. So what made you change your mind? You said you never do it again. Uh, I'm going to largely blame Adam Brault for that, uh, but uh, you know, it's just, it's just, it was a good event. We met a bunch of cool people, and we we just want to do it again. So, cool, cool. And when is that? Um, it's coming up in the fall here. I I'd have to put the exact date in the show notes. I should <laughs> I should know, but I don't off the top of my head. I think it was October I just something from what I saw. Yeah, it's October. Yeah. Oh. But we're selling early bird tickets right now. So, uh, first kind of batch of tickets is up right now. So, get a ticket. Cool. Yeah. That's a that's not that's a pricey ticket. 
It is. It is. But we do a bunch of really cool stuff. So, like, we spend it all. We're not – trust me, we're not going to make money on this thing. This is not a profit Uh, thing, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's – Community building. yeah, just check out the the one that we did last or the the last one that we did, and you'll you'll understand uh, why we charge what we charge. Cool. All right. Well, we'll have to do that. We like uh, we like going to conferences. It's a lot of fun. So aside yeah. from yeah, putting on this conference and speaking at conferences, um, you're also pretty well known for a book you wrote and uh, ampersand JS and your work at and yet and some of the things you've put out in the open source world. Where if if you were, I guess, on the changelog stage and you were introducing yourself to an audience that some know you, some don't know you, how do you introduce yourself? Oh, sheesh. Uh, well, so I, I mean, I'm a web developer, right? Like, I think that's kind of the most important thing, uh, but I use JavaScript to do so. Um, I've been kind of lead JavaScript developer at Andyet for a while. Um, and I just do a bunch of open source stuff. I've got a, a few hundred open source modules and stuff and, uh, you know, things like... Uh, around WebRTC, but just a lot of kind of thinking and talking around how to structure web applications in a way that doesn't like make an absolute mess of your code and so that other people can work on it, etc. I wrote a book called Human JavaScript that kind of attempts to uh, encapsulate some of that knowledge um, and also kind of training and teaching around those kinds of things as well. So I don't know. That about sums it up. Yeah, I think, and yet you guys are perhaps most uh, open source famous for ampersand js um first of all is that true or do you guys have a a, a bigger project that just hasn't hit my radar uh well we have we have one that uh, we you shared a while ago a while ago called simple webrtc uh that mm-hmm. basically just takes um in terms of like number of stars on github that's probably up there as well but okay um but yeah it just kind of makes webrtc something that an average web developer can do without having to like go study how this stuff works too much. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, ampersand is, is definitely kind of our, the thing that I think people have kind of seen the most of. So, so you want to give us the elevator pitch? Yeah. I mean, if you take, if you think about something like backbone, like a lot of people like the patterns in backbone, but uh, there's a lot that backbone doesn't do. And, you know, coming from kind of the node world, we like to split everything up into small modules. So what we did is we, we kind of started with backbone. We used to build a bunch on backbone and then we ended up kind of just forking and doing our own thing. So we took, uh, you know, each kind of component that you might have in Backbone, and it's published then as its own module. Uh, it's all written in CommonJS, uh, so you have to like install it with npm. Um, but as a result, you know, you end up only kind of shipping what you actually need, and people only grab and use the little portion of it that they want. Um, you know, we could have just done the whole thing as a bunch of completely separately named the things but we just kind of called it ampersand to give it something to kind of wrap it all together <laughs> i assume the other tie in there is the thing that sits in front of your business name the yeah ampersand. well we rather like the the symbol there for yeah. some reason but uh it's a good tie-in yeah. i like that yeah so what's ampersand's relationship to backbone is it inspired by is it a fork is it a rewrite is it the same thing uh, it definitely shares some code. Uh, we we uh, at first I was just kind of repl- writing a replacement for the models because I wanted models that were a little bit more specific as to what they would contain. Um, so, you know, unlike backbone models here, you have to actually define what you're going to store in a given model. 
uh, you have to at least give it kind of a, a name and a type. And then that the idea is that someone else who's kind of new to a project can like jump in and read your models and actually make sense of what's being stored and, you know, kind of the state that they have available. Um, but other portions like the router, for example, are, you know, much closer to what Backbone does and, you know, a lot of code. You know, in some of those cases, we, you know, we left the license in because there's so much shared code, right? Uh-huh. So. It kind of varied depending on which component, but uh, definitely if you're kind of from the backbone world, you'll feel kind of at home here. So uh, Adam and I were talking kind of yeah. pre-call about ampersand, the modularity versus you know some of the other frameworks and, and backbone itself. Um, who would you say ampersand is for? Is it for the beginner? Is it for the, the advanced person who is ready to pick and choose? Who's your core audience? Um, it's definitely not as easy to pick up as something like Angular. You know, I think uh, people who have done this for a little while probably are going to understand it and understand this value a little bit easier. Um, that's not to say, though, that you couldn't start with this. Um, but I would tend to say, you know, for for the most part, it's people who, who kind of like the patterns in Backbone, but they want the modularity and stuff that's that's such a big thing in, in the Node community. Mm. So, um, but yeah, we... The, the, you know, my favorite thing is that the, the way people are using this is like they'll just grab various pieces like WhatsApp, for example, they use just ampersand state. That's the only module of ours that they use uh, and they use React as the view layer and all that. Um, and then you get, you know, other companies that are just using like I know some folks at Yahoo that only use the router like and to me, that's a good like kind of pat on the back that we did something right, because that's that's the whole idea It's like. You don't have to go all in. You can, you know, here's a bunch of tools. They work nicely together if you want them. If you don't, just, you know, pick and choose. Mix and match with, with whatever else you want, right? So React or ampersand view or some other way to do things in the front end? Yeah. I mean, people have been doing it, mixing it up with, with there's one called Riot. There's uh, Active. There's, uh-huh. you know, a bunch of these, like, kind of view layer things that I've seen people use ampersand with. So, the fact that you can kind of pick and choose is, I would say, one of its key features. Being so inspired by Backbone, would you say it's a prerequisite to have some working knowledge of Backbone before you're productive, or could you just start right in with Ampersand? I would hope not. Uh, I, you know, it, it's possible that we need to do a better job of writing more intra-level guides, but we have some mm-hmm. of that stuff on the site, and it keeps getting better. So um, that's something that if you know if you're new and you're just looking into it and you're confused, like file a bug. We want to know because. We want to make it more approachable for people who are new. So we have to ask the question, um, you know, every framework uh, that comes on, we tend to ask this and it's kind of the why, why ampersand in light of not just in general, but in light of your other options, right? Because there's such a diverse landscape. There's so many tools out there right now that it's, it's commonly asked and talked about, which one should I choose? Um, so if you had to put it against an Ember, against an Angular or a, a framework like Aurelia, and you say, well, here's where Ampersand really shines, and then maybe here's where it's not a great pick. Could you do both right. of those? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, in some ways, I kind of hate pitching it or defending it at all sure. because I want it to just kind of stand on its own. And like, mm-hmm. I, I think the important thing is that people pick tools that, that kind of fit how they want to work and that let them be productive. Uh, if, if for some people that's... That's something like Angular, then then great. If that's meeting all your needs, then like stop. Don't don't need to, you don't need to go replace it, right? Um, but I think you know where it does shine is is kind of being able to handle and tolerate change over time. 
um, you don't have to go all in. Uh, that's kind of, uh-huh. you know, someone referred to it as kind of a, a fear of commitment framework. <laughs> and I, like I honestly, I kind of don't even really like calling it a framework at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I almost hate myself a little bit for having contributed to this whole kind of range of available options here. But uh, for us, it was just a matter of like, hey, here's the stuff that we're using. This seems to work pretty well for us. Let's share it and see what happens. And, you know, come to find out other people seem to think the same. So there are people that have kind of referred to it as a as kind of a natural kind of backbone 2.0 sort of thing. I wouldn't go that far, but uh, it's kind of a node-flavored backbone, I guess. <laughs> we shared an article in uh, – we ship a weekly uh, email every Saturday called Change Law Weekly. I don't know if you subscribe or not, but – in last week, I should. It sounds like, yeah, you, you definitely should. I, I don't know why you're not. You should, Everybody should. Changelaw.com slash weekly. Go sign up right now. We'll do. Um, but one of the articles we we share was, and it was the the most popular in this latest issue was, did you pick the wrong web framework? And it had a question mark <laughs> and a bang after, just to put the extra oomph on the end there. Right. And uh, <laughs> something that might tie into to how you think. I think is one thing mentioned here was start with humans rather than saying you know which code base or which framework works best for us and start to start with the people that are actually using it and how the teams work together and how they're going to be using this project long term and think of it that way versus um versus the tech you know start with the humans and would you agree with that statement yeah for sure and i mean you know we do we do consulting and and yet so we get you know we build apps for lots of different types of groups of people and uh, so we get this question a lot you know like how can i know which tools i'm supposed to use um and I would say the answer is you you can't right like the how can we predict the future? Um, what we can do is pick tools that like leave us some flexibility and I would say that's kind of my my uh, biggest concern with uh, some of these like more all inclusive frameworks is it's you're kind of all in like in in some ways and some people are going to hate me for this, but in some ways like you know getting really good at angular is is i would think it's almost kind of like getting really good at flash in some ways like you're kind of going all in on that technology and you're learning that technology uh, almost more than you you know are learning the problems that 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 thing solves for you um uh, i think his name is chris gale his was the former vice president at yammer former vice president of engineering said you know i'm more interested in people's understanding of problems and solutions. And I think that tends to be the case. So we tend to want to kind of grab something off the shelf that just kind of solves our problems. But that doesn't leave us as prepared when we have to evolve it over time or, you know, something else comes along that we're interested in. Like, we're kind of all in and it's hard to switch. And then we have this kind of almost religious buy-in to the framework that we've subscribed to. And I just don't really think anybody wins in that scenario. Like, I, I think we're better off, you know, kind of identifying and understanding the problems of building applications in this way and then being able to pick the tools. And then we're in a better spot to evaluate, like, which solution actually makes sense here. And I also like the concept of, you know, kind of the small modules thing from NPM and only using what you actually need, um, which then leaves you the option to replace or what have you. Yeah. See, I'm on kind of two minds on this because. I definitely see the value in modularity and uh, dipping your toe in the water. We just had uh, the Microsoft team, the TypeScript team on recently. I think it was uh, yeah. in 152. And you know, TypeScript's seen some adoption because they decided to go with a strict superset of JavaScript. And that allows teams to like dip their toe in the water with TypeScript. And it's not right. a huge 
investment right up front to get into it, which it sounds like that's some of Ampersand's um, power is that you can kind of dip your toe in the water. And I see right. the value in that. And definitely as you build it and things change, that's the only thing that we understand in software is that things are going to change. Yeah, for sure. At the same time, I also understand that paradox of choice and oh, totally. that paralysis that happens when you're just Absolutely. getting started. And I need to pick, you know, 30 different modules that I, I'm going to yeah. go with. And it requires a lot of kind of prerequisite knowledge, which I, I really don't like either. That's something yeah. that, um, like, if you've ever been to any of my workshops or anything, that's always something I try to kind of just be like, hey, here's a starting point. Like, mm-hmm. if, you, if, you, if you do this and you build things in this way, then at least you kind of, you're accidentally learning the various pieces involved here and the problems that we're solving. Um, but yeah, I think we've made it way too hard to be a new web developer. Mm-hmm. Like way too hard. Like I, it's super frustrating. Um, so I, you know, and I think, I mean, if you go read Hacker News and something, you're you're a brand new developer. You think you have to build some like crazy isomorphic app or whatever <laughs> just to start, right? Yeah. And like you're just scaring people off before they even start. Uh, whereas you know, when I was getting into the stuff, like when I first saw jQuery, and I'm like, holy crap, I can just open a console and you know see some like little elements flying around the page like this is awesome i now feel powerful right <laughs> right and like i think what we're doing for the most part is scaring people off more than actually making them feel like they can jump in so what i'm kind of interested in is trying to find that balance between yeah. like you know giving giving a new person a toolkit that they can just start with uh without having to like grok everything but still have the resulting app be something that's you know reasonably performant and is well structured to the point where someone else can jump in and help or whatever Uh um so i think it's a really hard line to walk but uh i think we should keep trying interesting the uh the point that you get where you're picking a javascript framework you've actually already made some decisions right and one of those foundational decisions you've made is you're going to be client-side rendering um Sort Which of. yeah, sort of. You can you don't necessarily have to do it all like that, but um, right. generally speaking, you've decided to separate out your API, your server yeah. side from your from your client side. Yep. Uh, which that's a big debate as well, right? And yeah, uh, I was interested. I read a few uh, pages of your book, uh, Human JavaScript. You have it online for free. We'll link that up in the show notes. Uh, one of the things you say there, which I was, was a surprise coming from you, a JavaScript advocate, is that for many types of applications, building a single page app is harder and gives you no additional value. I do think there will be a day when that, that's no longer the case, but we're not there yet. Yeah, um, I agree. I, and I, you got to realize I, I wrote that two years ago. So, okay, so is it uh, outdated? <laughs> it's not outdated. It's just, it, you know, that like, like you said, I do think we're moving towards the, the, the time when that's no longer the case. Right. Um, I am going to go and do a second version of the book, and when I do, it's going to be talking about, uh, basically recommending that, what you do is that you build uh, kind of static single-page apps, if you will, uh, where you basically have everything, you know, you kind of get your whole file structure, but you compile it down to a set of static assets and uh, where you also then pre-render anything ahead of time that you know is going to exist at a given URL. Um, I really like that pattern of having, like, kind of drawing that line in the sand, like, hey, we're building this, this static app. And uh, I think once you get to that, it it can start to feel like you know this is a this is a better approach. However, there's still the case where like 
you know, for certain types of apps, like why are you doing a client side app anyway? Like it, uh-huh. it doesn't really make sense. Like if you're publishing a news site, like why on earth would you make it client rendered? Right. I don't, I don't understand that. Uh, you know, to me, you're just adding complexity there. It's hard enough to get like, you know, if you're working on BBC.com to like make a, something that's going to work on every device ever. Right. That's right. a hard enough of a problem to solve. And the, the primary purpose, the reason people are coming to your site is to read that content. Like, don't make that, don't make me download right. two megabytes of JavaScript to see, you know, to read your news article, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's where you have to really focus, again, you focus on the user and all those things kind of tend to, to sort themselves out a little bit. It becomes clear what you're, what you're aiming to do. If the answer is to provide this really rich kind of application-like experience behind a login or something, then by all means, like, write it in JavaScript. But if you're just publishing content, or you're doing a blog or whatever, like, Let's not make the hard things. Or let's not make the things that can be simple any harder than they need to be. Yeah, kind of reminds me of the uh, post that Martin Fowler put out this week. Monolith first. Did either of you? I did read see that, that one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and the kind of the the synopsis there is that there's this trend towards microservices, right. and there are completely legitimate times where microservices is the architecture that you want to take on, right. but oftentimes it's not what you want to take on at first. Because right. you don't know what you're building or uh, you're just over-engineering for something that may never need it. Lots of reasons. And he goes into the details. I think we'll definitely put that one in weekly yeah. this Saturday. It's already in the queue for it. Is it? Great. Yep. Um, but like, keep it simple, right? And then, right. Uh, and then, but keep it simple without backing yourself into the corner. Right. And I think that's kind of what you're advocating there as well, which is don't over-engineer. If your problem that you're solving doesn't require a client-side rich client then don't start with that just because it's, you know, what people do. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there's, again, make things as simple as they can be. Software is inherently, like, difficult. <laughs> there's, like, right. the natural state of any code base is entropy. Like, we we don't, again, it's, it's, it's a battle that you have to fight, I think, is to try to keep things as simple as they can be. And if you don't, you're just going to end up with a mess and someone else is going to have to clean it up. So, Jared, I think you kind of asked this question a bit earlier, but I'm not sure if we got a clear enough answer if it was... <laughs> okay. I'm not. I'm try, just not try sure. Try again. Hold his feet to the fire. Come on. Well, do after it, after <laughs> having this conversation, I'm wondering, you know, what kind of developer does Ampersand serve then? You know, how would they choose it over, you know, things like Ember, Angular, React, Aurelia? Uh, I put React. Is that React in the notes? Wasn't there a... a did you replace Randall? We have um, Durandal in the notes, Jared. React is not really a yeah, great yeah. fit there. Durandal's well, also, you know, really he's moved on. He's moved right, on okay. to Aurelia, so that's why yeah, I replaced yeah. it. Anyways, no, what, gotcha. what I would, I mean, you, it, it, it's not all. It's not one or the other. I mean, it, it definitely. If you go Amber, uh, like if you use Ember, you're you're not going to be using any ampersand stuff. But like, personally, I've been building a bunch of stuff with ampersand and React, and I like it a lot. Uh, where I'm just using kind of ampersand to model some data from APIs and what have you, and then using the simplicity of the of React as a view layer to just kind of re-render at will. And it's it's super easy, and it makes things, you know, pretty straightforward. So I think, you know, I, <laughs> again, I'm not, I'm not, not going yeah, to sit here and, like, tell people to, like, you should use ampersand. But for some people, it really... It really fits uh, how they go about building things because it it lets you kind of, I, for example, I, I was just in Las Vegas at Future Insights Live and uh, the guy gave came up the, on stage and gave a talk about like you know, building front ends without frameworks, and he starts out with really really basic like he's like you don't need a model you can use these plain JSON objects 
And then he goes, well, then you need to put them somewhere. In that case, maybe like use a collection. And then he started using, and he's like, oh, and, and he started with ampersand collection. Like so now instead of having just an array of objects, he had an array of small modules that he could or small models that he could then observe. And it's like, you know, that's kind of the mentality. Like if you start with the absolute basics first, then you can kind of layer in stuff as you find yourself needing it, as opposed to like, I'm going to use Ember for this app that, you know, you may never need, you may never use a, a third of what Ember has and has to kind of instantiate for you when you, when you spin it up. Right. So I think, I think it's a toolkit, you know, it, 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 someone said that it's, it's more like a machine shop rather than a hammer. Like anyone can swing a hammer, but if you have a machine shop, you can build really incredible, finely tuned things. Um, so I think that's a little bit more of the where it fits in. Uh-huh. So how we name some of the actual individualized modules? Uh, I'm just thinking for some links and just you know some yeah, of the core yeah. things uh, you use to to build. So ampersand ampersand state, for example, is basically an observable object, and it doesn't make any assumptions about how you're going to use it. So um, Basically, you define a set of properties that this thing is going to store. You say what type it is, and then it will throw type errors if you try to set a value equal to something else, right? And it's the wrong type. And it will fire a change event anytime you change that value, whether you do it through a set or one thing that we do that's kind of unique is like even if you do it via assignment, so you say, you know, model dot property name equals something else, you'll still get a change event from that. Uh, because we're actually because we're forcing you to register which properties it's going to store, we create mm-hmm. you know these these getters and setters to actually do that. Um, so as a result, you know you end up with this very nice little observable object. Um, and then you know ampersand collection, for example, is it basically it's an observable array. So you can store plain JavaScript objects in an ampersand collection. Um, but then if you want to talk to an API with that collection and get that data from an API, you can use ampersand rest collection. And then you just add a URL and you have a fetch method now. So you can call fetch and then you're kind of in backbone style um, collections. So um, you can kind of, you see, you can kind of just grab what you need. Um, one of the reasons I originally started messing around with kind of splitting this stuff out is like I was building this um, this touch library. and uh, what I wanted to do was be able to model touch events. Um, and if you've ever done with done this directly in a browser, you have to you basically get you get a touchdown, a touch move, and a touch up, right, or touch end. So if you want to do something that's like based on a hold action, there's a ton of stuff that you have to model there. You have to know like, okay, it started at this spot. It hasn't moved more than this distance. You have to set a timer when it first you know when you first put the finger down. And then at some point, you have to notify the code that cares about it that it's now being held, right? So it's a bit of a complex example, perhaps. But with something like a, you can take just an ampersand state object to model each touch. And then you just set, you know, the, the properties. And then you can have all these derived properties based on, you know, the values that you set. So you can say, I, I have a, the classic example being, I have a full name that's based on first name and last name, right? Um but these things get intelligently fired based on changes. So if the end calculated result isn't different, it's not going to fire a change event on the derived property. So as a result, you can almost kind of do this functional reactive programming style uh, and have these very concise, easy to describe uh, state objects 
that will let you, you know, kind of track complex state like that, whether it's, you know, coming from an API or not, right? Hopefully that made sense. And yeah, that was a bit yeah. of a yeah. bit of a ramble. And then Vue, obviously, we talked about Vue a little bit earlier. It's uh it's not full on React, obviously. So it's something a bit more right, simple, so, but you could swap it out for React if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. So ampersand view is a bit like it's basically a slightly more powerful backbone view. Um honestly ourselves we've recently been leaning towards just using react as a view layer instead and that's that's precisely the functionality that we wanted like being able to have the ability to swap things out as as we saw fit so um if you like backbone views you'll probably like ampersand views if you like react then you can just use react right just sitting here wondering just personally what your personal technical background is as far as did you cut your teeth on javascript or did you have other languages in your back pocket well, I started uh, years ago when I had no idea. I studied business, so I I didn't study this stuff at all. Hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, I was always into computers, but I didn't really like program. Um, in my senior year in college, I wanted to start a business uh, that was like this web-based real estate listing thing. And uh, I couldn't afford to hire anybody who was any good to build what I wanted. <laughs> So it's like, how hard can this be? <laughs> so I started just kind of messing around with it. This was like 2005. Um, at the time, I had no idea what to pick. I found a really great tutorial on lynda.com, uh, building an app with Cold Fusion. So that's what I did. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but, you know, and, but once you kind of pick up a second and a third language, like you start to see that they're really all the same. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I did Python after that and was really into Django for a while. Um, I loved like the cleanliness of Python, mm-hmm. which is something I still kind of miss a little bit in JavaScript. It's like Python has pep eight. It's like, hey, the creator said this is how you should write Python. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like it'd be nice to have some of that to some extent in JavaScript right. as well. But. I like that about Go too, where they actually have a tool that, you know, Go format where you can run it through right. and it just basically reformats your code according to the standards. It's like awesome. Yeah. Totally. And but you don't it, sit there and argue about this stuff. Except what course. I don't like is it puts hard tabs in there and it's like, oh no, oh. you know. So like <laughs> it's all good as long as you agree with my uh with my opinions. Right. No, totally. But I think I think it's important to recognize though. Yeah, right. But I think you know, recognizing the things that are important to argue right. about versus the things that aren't, right? right. I've recently gotten really into using um I don't know if you guys know Frost. Uh, does a bunch of crazy WebRTC stuff and is big in the Node community. But Mm-mm. he's he's the guy that did WebTorrent. Okay. How do you, um, how do you uh, spell his name? F e r o s s. He also did Peer CDN. If you ever saw that, but anyway, he he uh, had the audacity to create a, a Node module called Standard. That is his set of uh, oh nice code, I see that. code style for uh, for mm-hmm. JavaScript. And I just love it. I've just started using that. Like, I it it didn't match everything that I believed in in terms of like right. how I was writing code before. I was like, I don't care. It's got a built-in formatter. I don't have to argue with anybody. Like, you just make it part of your testing. There's no config. There's no arguing. It's right. like, yeah, no, this isn't is. the make. Right. So, no, no ES lint RC. No JS int RC. No JS right CSRC. What is that one? I don't know what that one is. It's JS. just another one. That's the one. Yeah. I think I think jQuery uses that. Uh, call it's actually it's reasonably popular but yeah i haven't i haven't used it much that's neat one thing that they do have that's quite cool is that you can kind of have it has a some pretty powerful formatting stuff so once you define your rules not only can you say if you validate those rules you can kind of say reformat my code to meet these rules which is pretty neat so you can opt in to certain things but not everything 
Well, what I'm saying is you can go the other way. You can have it format your code based on the rules that you give it. Right. So it's like it's not just going to tell you, you know, shame on you, you didn't follow the rules. It's going to also say, I'll rewrite your code for you to match the style that you defined, uh-huh. which is pretty cool. That is really and, cool. And the standard has has a formatter now too, so that's that's also good. Is there anything in here that just writes the code altogether? I wish. I wish. <laughs> work, work it on that. That's the next step. Is like you, you, you verbally describe plus plus. your application. Yeah, yeah. English to JavaScript. There you compiler. go. Compiler. Yeah. yeah. We can get the the dragon people. You know those people where you talk into the mic and it types for you. Oh yeah. You can get them yeah. involved. They'll, they'll be excited about that. You guys have never heard of brain brain to JS because that's. <laughs> That's what I that's want. That's what that is? Yeah, just that's brain. That's what it is. Huh? Skip the words. You don't need the words. Just for, straight for the brain. Yeah. Straight the brain. Brain to, that's cool. Brain to JS. English is a, is a lossy uh, translation. Yeah. It's my new library. It's coming out in nice. 2020. I'll well, use it. <laughs> well, while we're uh, learning a bit more about your background, Henrik, let's, oh. uh, let's, let's tease real quick. We're going to take a break, <laughs> hear from a sponsor, okay. but when we come back... We're going to hear how you once described yourself. So let's let's break. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about Top Towel several times on this podcast, but today is different. I've got a special treat for you. I went out and spoke with a listener who a year ago had never heard of Top Towel. He listened to the show just like you're doing right here, right now today, and heard us talk about Top Towel and what they're all about, and he decided to get in touch. And now he's living the dream as a freelance software developer with Top Towel. His name is Daniel Elzon, and I sat down and I talked with him. I said, hey, what is it that you love most about TopTal? Take a listen. Well, for me, the, the thing about TopTal, which I thought would be very hard for me personally as I transitioned to a more consulting role, uh, was the, the way I would have access to new clients and what quality of those would be. So I found that I've had access to awesome clients through TopTal, and it hasn't been that hard to find because they have a lot of choice. And even more than that, uh, there's enough choice, and I I can actually be a little selective about what kinds of things I want to be working on. So I use that as a way to sort of hone my skills and, you know, go towards the technologies I think are are worth investing in for the future. So whether it's, you know, including new front-end frameworks or doing a little DevOps work on the side, I, I, I usually am able to find clients who are, uh, have the needs of the things I want to get better at. So that's been, that's been uh, truly useful. All right, that was Daniel Lazon, a listener of the Changelog and also a freelance software developer with TopTal. If you want to follow in Daniel's footsteps, go to toptal.com slash developers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash developers. To learn more about what TopTal is all about and tell them the changelog sent you. All right, we're back. So, Henrik, you once described yourself as not a good JavaScript developer. <laughs> and that's yeah. on your about page on the Anyet website. So it's it's in black and white. You can't run away from it. What, um, what made you say that? Why'd you say that? Because I mean, you seem pretty good to me. Well, I, I mean, how do we really objectively know anyway, right? I mean, honestly, you just, but, put it, uh, you just put it on your about page. That's all you got to do. <laughs> no, I mean, so what happened was uh, that's uh, I, I said that to Adam here at India uh, shortly after I started. I hadn't written that much JavaScript. And, uh, you know, I just kind of I don't know. I've been told I have a uh, self-deprecating personality anyway. So maybe it was just a little bit of that. I don't know. <laughs> but. 
But you no longer call yourself this, of course. I, you know, I've kind of come to, <laughs> come to terms with the fact that I'm okay at JavaScript. There you go. So, so at what point did you start getting deeper into JavaScript? How many years has it been since you came from ColdFusion, went to Python, and then now you're where you're at now? Oh, I've basically been writing JavaScript exclusively almost for the last five years. And, and the uh, when I first joined in yet, we had this really cool project actually where um, we were doing this rather intense asset tracking application. They had these really cool little devices that um, they, they would set up a, like a terrestrial network and then um, they would uh, be able to track like with super high precision within a small area uh, where everything was. And they, they needed a web app to do this. And so we had actually wrote like a whole job system that would process that tons of that incoming data. And then we displayed all this stuff uh, in a browser on a live map. So it'd be the kind of thing where like you could even have someone have a sensor in a briefcase and they'd go up the elevators. And we would do things like switch out the uh, the floor map based on the barometric pressure on these sensors, right? Mm. Like. It was it was quite an involved app, and it was very uh, advanced as far as web apps go for it for its time. And uh, it was right around the time when, like, we wrote a version of it, and then Backbone came out. We were in the process of basically writing our own Backbone back then because we knew we needed it. And then when that came out, it was like Backbone point three or something. I'm like, nope, we're using this, and I just like rewrote the whole app using that. Uh, and that was, you know. I don't know, four or five years ago now, but um, yeah, I don't know. Just been doing lots of it since then. For version's sake, right now the latest production version of Backbone is 1.2.1, just FYI. Yeah. <laughs> I'll update. <laughs> <laughs> so is that app still in production? Uh, yeah, actually, it is. Uh, awesome. It's, it was for a, a kind of a very sort of private group, so it's not like... Um, it's not like something you can really go look at, I don't think. But. Sure. It's just nice to be able to write software that's still valuable, you know, four or five years later. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Aside from the browser changing and standards changing, I guess, within the browser, um, you know, older JavaScript apps don't have much of a problem because they can be served from pretty much anywhere, their client side, right? So you pretty much just yeah. deal with the evolution of JavaScript and the, the ever-changing landscape of the web. Right, right. Yeah, and at the time it was it was really unique to have something that was getting that much data pushed to it from the server, you know, through these real time connections. So we had, you know, we were early users of, of Socket.io, and we were using before then it was even kind of these long polling systems uh, using Bosch XMPP mm. to do this stuff in the browser, uh, which was you know, so I was writing like XMPP plugins and stuff five years ago, which was interesting. So let's hold off on WebRTC because I'd like to talk about that later just as a standalone topic. But aside from that, um, you know, how has the web evolved uh, maybe from from the time that you started, even when you were not so good of a JavaScript developer, to now? And then what are some technologies that are either here or are, you know, on the fringe of, of coming up that are exciting for you? Well, I think how it's evolved is it's just gotten complicated. <laughs> well, that's um, not good. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, I think is that a devolution? I, uh, in some ways, I think so. Yeah, um, but I but I think that we are starting to see a shift there, and I think you know uh, things like, I mean, I, I think React is one of the few like that stands out as like an actual simplifying technology that's appeared uh, in the last few years that actually make lives better for developers. Um, simply because you don't necessarily have to do individual bindings. You can just be like, hey, re-render whenever you want. And that's extremely valuable uh, from a complexity standpoint. Mm-hmm. You don't have to keep all that stuff in your head in the same way. 
Um, of course, it has its own set of challenges, but I think that's um, that's been one of these like huge uh, things that have changed for the better. Um, I totally forgot the second part of your question. Just uh, upcoming technologies, web technologies, ES6 stuff, mm-hmm. whatever is getting you excited. And, and yeah, you know, so I'm writing a bunch of ES6 now uh, using Babel.js as a kind of a transpiler. Um, I think once you get to the point where you have a build step in your application, which I would go as far as to say that, you know, we should all be doing that these days. The tools have come far enough to where there's no reason not to. Uh-huh. Once you have a build step, you know, it's a pretty inconsequential thing to just also sneak in a little transpiler in there as well. Um, so, you know, I've been writing ES6 exclusively now for the last little bit here. And I think um, being able to do that it just kind of eliminates a little bit of um boilerplate and stuff that we mm-hmm. had to do before so i think that's a nice change that we're seeing um again like i said before i'm i'm huge on like this whole concept of going back to making your entire client side app completely a static set of files i think that's i think we're gonna see a lot more of that i see a lot more people doing that dramatically simplifying operations and stuff as a result because uh-huh. you you're back to like transferring files like they uh one of the developers from Shutterfly was in one of my workshops and they um they went and changed a bunch of stuff they built a bunch of stuff with ampersand and uh they compiled it all down to a set of static assets and he's like yeah our uh, deployment tool is now rsync right which is like you know <laughs> and i in talking to folks from uh, flipkart which is one of the largest e-commerce sites in india they actually they have a unique situation there, but they basically do the same thing, right? They they compile everything down to a, a set of static assets, and then they use web views inside Android apps to do this stuff. But still, like, they handled their scaling issues by making their clients do more stuff. Wow, they had a rather dramatic uh, server issue on a very big day for them before, and then this is how they fixed it. <laughs> so they're right. like passing more stuff off to the client. I think we're going to see a lot more people doing that as clients become increasingly better runtimes yeah uh related and, and maybe perhaps a little bit of a tease for next week's show we'll be talking http2 with Ilya gregoric oh he's um, awesome yeah we're, we had him on earlier this year talking about github archive and we're excited to have him back to talk about the update to his book um with, with now that http2 has been finalizing the stuff and that's really gonna flip the script on a few things with regard to best practices and serving static assets because um things that we once were like you know, canon truths are no longer true anymore, such as, you know, the requirement to concatenate your CSS all into a single file is right, actually an right. anti-practice when it comes to HTTP2. So I think things are going to yeah, be changing, this... but they're also going to be getting easier because now you don't even have to have that build step necessarily to have the performance gains. Sort of, but I would still say that, you know, most of these people that are building these types of applications are, you know, it's not just a matter of, you know, five or ten files we're talking a couple hundred files Lots. maybe that you do. And, uh, and, you know, I don't know if doing those, even if you kind of pipeline them in the way that you can with HTTP2, I'm not I'm not entirely sure it obviates the need for a build step. Um, so it'll be kind of interesting to see what happens. And, and that logic has to kind of happen somewhere, right? Your server has to be smart enough to know what to send for what. Right. Um, and so I'm, I don't know. I haven't seen a ton of, of like, really great open source answers to these questions yet it's right. quite possible that i just haven't seen them but um but yeah i don't know it'll be it'll be really interesting to see what what happens 
Yeah, I mean, you're right in the fact that HTTP2 is, is opt-in. So you're still going to have many, many clients for many years that can't speak that language, and you're going to have to provide an optimal experience for them as well. Um, I'm pretty sure that, and we'll find out next week, and we'll, we'll ask him this very pointedly, but I'm pretty sure that um, even with many small files, it's actually faster not to concatenate. Um, right, but you're still going to want to minify them. So yeah, the why not? Yeah, doesn't go away, right? Right, the weight. You're going to want to shed some of the weight if you can. Yep. Yeah, the, you're so still going to have a build step. doesn't go away. But, sure, but the, sure. But, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, Just the I best practices are changing a little bit, that's all. Exactly, yeah. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the kind of the tooling uh, steps up to match that. I'm quite curious to see how that plays out too. Because I, I mean, I think performance is one of those things that, you know, we have to care about on the web. Um, and... Uh, we've seen lacking kind of in some of these larger frameworks, uh, just kind of a little bit too heavy. So seeing, seeing kind of the technologies kind of catch up to enable these kinds of things is interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I'll I mean, have to pay attention next week too. I want to hear what he said. <laughs> For sure. The, uh, the other thing around performance is, you know, we've had a move recently uh, thinking specifically of Facebook's, what's it called? Instant news. Yeah. Instant articles or whatever. Yeah. Instant articles um, where they're basically declaring, which is, Interesting, but they're declaring that, you know, the web isn't fast enough. You know, we need to be able to cache these news articles so that we engage people faster because people want their information right now or they're going to move on. Um, and so specifically around content-based sites, right, news sites, right. Um, there's conversation around is it the web technologies and the DOM that's just never going to be good enough? Or is it, you know, the tools or is it the developers or is it the businesses? Do you have a take on that? Well, I think in their case, it's it's fairly straightforward. I mean, it, it, fetching and and uh, caching content ahead of time is going to be dramatically faster. And in, even though they're not saying it, I would venture to say one of the big reasons they're doing it is they want to control the experience of those sites as well, the experience of that content. Um, you know, a lot of people put so much clutter and ads and stuff into right. these content sites. Like you get these like links to BuzzFeed or what have you, and it's just a bunch of – you have to sit there and wait for so many – unrelated things to load before you ever get to see what you're trying to see that i would venture to say that's at least in part what they're addressing as well yeah uh, it's not that if they knew that all these sites were super well optimized and you know serve content first like i don't i don't think we'd be sitting here having this conversation honestly it's not a big concern though for um for those who care about like data plans and stuff like that that are like fetching data that they don't actually want to you're sort of pre-fetching assuming you're you're gonna want this content and then you're sort of like no i don't want it and you're burning through all your bandwidth. Yeah, I mean, arguably, right? That's, yeah. uh, that's a good point. Um, but obviously, that's a choice that they made. And I mean, I think I think a lot of people are experiencing content through the built-in browsers on Facebook these days. Right. Um, and I would venture to say that, you know, by grabbing content directly from the publishers that the way that they are, they're probably minimizing the total amount of size, you know, file coming through maybe. But... Um, but I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I guess if you're in that Facebook wall world, you know, you're in the app, you're not, you know, it's Facebook, it's not a Facebook conversation here, but just a tiny little rant, I guess, is sure. that, you know, if you're clicking a link from within Facebook, it's their anticipation that you're going to want whatever you've clicked. And then so they can sort of go to that site and, and prefetch a lot of the data if, if they need to, to speed it up. Is that what this instant page thing is, Jared, or instant article? Is that like so, when you click through the link, it's there faster than 
Mm, no, it's actually like so. a capturing. So Facebook. So imagine New York Times has an article. Facebook is going to go grab grab that, cache it, and serve their version of that article to everybody. Um, and so it's just not any New York Times server at all anymore. Yeah, they've worked directly with publishers, from what I understand, to kind right, of it's an uh, get access. And uh, right, so it's not going to be for every link you click. It's right be for specific the publishers. Right, and I'm sure there's deals around making sure they still have analytics and that kind of yeah. stuff. But because um, those aren't those businesses aren't just foolish, and I'm sure right. they're pretty skeptical going into it still. But anyways. Yep. Well, Henrik did say earlier it's getting more complicated, so it's proving the truth Well, I think, I think the web is – I mean I think it's important to note that the web is getting to be you know, simply putting your content out there. You don't know how it's going to be used. I mean with, yeah. with more and more devices hitting the internet that are not just you know, big desktop screens, people are extracting content from stuff all over the place. And I think you know, kind of coming up with ways to serve the content in its raw form in a way that still makes sense uh, is going to be a bigger deal. And, you know, we, we're seeing a lot more APIs and stuff, but to some degree there's people getting really stingy about access to those APIs too. So yeah, we shall see. The good old days are ending. More popular and more traffic. Right. Remember the, the days of pop-ups and pop-up blockers? I mean, <laughs> pop-up ads were the worst, right? Yeah. And then browser vendors just solved it. They're just like, yeah, you can't do that anymore. Right. And nowadays, you know, we have these like full page modal things that are like it's the content overlay. Yeah. It's not a pop up. It's just like the entire page is taken over by some ridiculously off uh, off topic ad right. before we can get to the content. So it's a struggle because publishers need to make money, you know, put the content out that we want, but they're not really serving us. So it's just a mess. Yeah, for sure. So. But I think for the most part, the people that are building like JavaScript applications, these are not necessarily the problems we're solving. You know, a lot of times right. the, the apps that we're building um, are things that are more control panel type interfaces. Like I think the whole content conversation uh, is is a bit different mm -hmm. um, than at least most people that are using these frameworks and tools that we're talking about here are not building those types of sites. Right. Um, Hopefully, but and I think that, and I think it's perfectly okay to say that there is a different type of application on the web. You know, I think people get a little riled up about saying that there's you know any sort of difference between a web app and a website, right? Like that old debate, which is super worn and tired. But um, you know, from my perspective, it's a it's a fairly clean distinction. You know, depending on what type of experience you're trying to provide to the user. Yeah, just to go back again to uh, something that you wrote. Uh, in your book, he says, building client-side apps is often more complicated than a server-side rendered app. Decide carefully. Ask yourself, is there additional benefit for your users? Are you building something that is open and closed frequently, or are you building an experience? How often does the data in the application change? Do you care if it changes while the app is open? So I think that speaks well into what you're saying. A lot of these, a lot of applications that are served very well by client-side frameworks are dashboards, and data-rich yeah. things that need to be updating live, whether it's pulled or pushed. Um, and the content sites that we're complaining about, like, they actually kind of have it easier. They have the simpler side, right? They just need to serve right. the content. And most of the time, it's actually, you know, business constraints that are, that are causing yeah, the headaches. Yeah, they just make it hard and annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to be a developer. But I, you know, like the I, content I, sites, though, you might end up putting something like back, like... Uh, I can recall back at Pure Charity when we were doing some different things. Um, you know, we we were doing server side rendering through a Ruby app, but we were also building Backbone on top of it to to yeah. provide a better, sure. richer experience for some of the data there. So you sort of still do sometimes have that 
that crossover there when it does happen. Yeah, for sure. And especially I think that's where it's that's where it's nice to be able to grab little pieces that you need too. Yeah. Right? That's that's another little pitch there for ampersand, right? Like, yeah. And that's how we've seen people use it. I know people at Financial Times that have used it for little like, you know, interactive visualizations and stuff, right? Like that are kind of add-ons to mm-hmm. otherwise static sites and what have you. So, um, you know, I think yeah, it's definitely it, it can be used in that tool set for sure. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of times people are, you know, most people that do this stuff day to day are. are being asked to build, you know, these control dashboards and these data input systems and stuff, right? Exactly. Well, I think uh, I'd like to switch gears to WebRTC. Okay. Sound good? Yeah, Maybe let's sure. uh, let's take a sponsor now. We'll take a break, hear from a sponsor, and when we get back, uh, we'll talk about WebRTC and simple WebRTC when we get back. DreamHost now has managed VPS hosting built for speed, and scalability, including solid-state drives, and that's awesome. These VPSs are built for open-source developers and now include one-click installs of Node.js, custom Ruby, and RVM support. Speed, speed, and more speed is what it's all about. Their VPS servers use SSD hard drives and are 20% faster than traditional SATA drives. All virtual private servers from DreamHost include SSD storage, Ubuntu 12.04 LTS, web-based control panel, scalable RAM, which is super awesome. You can go from one gig of RAM and easily scale up to eight gigs if you need it. Node.js one-click install, Ruby version manager, unlimited bandwidth, unlimited hosted domains, unlimited 24-7 support. Go check them out and learn more at dreamhost.com slash the changelog. All right, everybody, we are back. We are talking with Henrik Yorteg about all things JavaScript and web. And the cool stuff they're doing over at and yet uh, ampersand JS and another project you mentioned before the break, which is Simple Web RTC. Henrik, can you tell us uh, first of all what's Web RTC? Why is it cool? And then how does your guys's open source uh, tool play into it? Sure. So Web RTC is essentially a low latency peer to peer networking in the browser. So uh, you know WebSockets is server to browser. Uh, web web rtc is browser to browser um so you're actually negotiating a direct connection between two browsers and then at the point where you have that connection there there's no server anymore um so you know you can do things like voice and video streaming so you can build you know voice and video communications applications or you can use uh, the web rtc data channel to then send you know, whatever sort of data you want. Uh, So you can do things like file transfer or what have you. Um, But, I mean, essentially the way that that works is you still need some sort of discovery mechanism uh, to let these two browsers find each other. Um, So they're typically, which is why people kind of get confused about this, because you need a server somewhere to kind of negotiate and send these signaling messages back and forth so that these two browsers can find each other. the cool thing about how that technology works, however, is you know if it can, it kind of attempts to discover where you are, and so if you if you have two users on the same network, uh, in theory at least, it should be able to discover that they are in the same network. So when you do data transfer, uh, those bits never leave the building. Um, so it's it's a pretty cool technology. I mean, it really enables uh, a different set of applications to be built on the internet. Um, so all of a sudden doing Skype uh, in the browser is a viable thing. 
um, et cetera. So that's kind of, I don't know, that's probably as good of an overall summary as I can, I can do. Awesome. Yeah. It looks like it has kind of, unfortunately, spotty uh, browser support. Uh, the latest yeah. Chromes and Firefox and Opera all seem to support it as well as Chrome for Android, but IE, Safari, Mobile Safari, and Opera Mini are all reds on the Can I Use charts. Yep. So what what we're doing, I mean, so, well, first of all, that's changing as far as IE is concerned. Okay. Um, what, what happened is, um, you know, Google basically, they created the WebRTC standard for all practical purposes. I mean, there's other people involved. Don't get me wrong. But, like, they've, they're kind of the ones that kind of pushed it along early on. Um, actually, that's not entirely accurate. Uh, Mozilla was pretty heavily involved from the beginning, too. So scratch that from the record. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But the point is, like, you know, they just kind of pushed it and shipped it, right? Like, they got it out there, and uh, it's great for small conversations. Um, if you want to do, like, any sort of type mesh network where every user is connected to everybody else, it's fine. Uh, but for the – what they realized is, like, in order to even build something like Google Hangouts using WebRTC, once you get up to, you know, I would say more than four or five people – it stops making sense to have a total mesh network because now you have to upload your video stream to every single other person that you're talking to. Mm. And pretty soon your bandwidth and your local, just your computer just starts melting down just because it's working so hard, right? Like it's got to encode and decode all this video about it. You know, it just, it gets really crazy. Right. Um, so if you're going to do any sort of larger conference scenario or, any kind of broadcast scenario where you have one person sending to a, a larger audience where it's only going one direction, you know, the, the kind of the peer connection objects, objects that were added to, you know, Chrome's uh, API, they kind of don't do that well. They don't handle that case yet well. So Microsoft, they wanted to implement WebRTC, but they're like, these are these problems that we have in order to be able to build these kinds of applications. Yeah. And uh, so they kind of came forward with an alternate spec, which, you know, you might make, you might make you roll your eyes at first, but they actually had really good reason to. And uh, so everybody's going to kind of jump over to that spec and that's called the ORTC. And that enables a lot more fine grained control over the various pieces. So instead of having this like one serves everything peer connection object, you get all kinds of these more, fine-grained control over you can do you know interesting network topologies to make more efficient use of of the bandwidth that you do have and what have you so the server is still required though right just for uh no just for discovery right so you can actually do uh once you have a connection with somebody you can actually drop the server entirely oh so has apple shown any interest in ortc or they're still going to be. I would party. say they're not going to do it till anyone makes them, uh, and you know, because because let me think about it, right? Like, what incentive do they have? I don't know. Because they have FaceTime, they want you to use FaceTime. Yeah, um, but Microsoft has Skype. They want you to use Skype, and they want to build it in the browser. So mm. they're and they're being more progressive, in my opinion, now these yeah. days uh, with that stuff. Um, so the they and the IE team has committed to doing this, so they will be doing it. Um, in fact, some folks on our team are working with them to make sure that uh, that simple WebRTC abstracts the differences. So uh, even when you know when they do show up, and you know as long as you're using simple WebRTC, all of a sudden you just get IE support as well. Um, 
whether that's you know ORTC on one end and WebRTC on the other. The, the idea is that you know we're going to try to abstract all that stuff out. So does does uh, this may be an idiot question here, but does simple WebRTC support both WebRTC and the ORTC? The this alternate it version? will it will it will yeah. Okay. We have to change the name. Jerry, we've talked about that before. Uh, we, we, we talked we, about we, that with uh, Daniel Stenberg. As a matter of fact, yep. uh, LibCurl and Curl had several names in its history. So like, as, yeah. as it evolved and supported different things. We're, like, we're not going to change the name. Get, right? is what I think he normally he originally called it. And then yeah. started doing posts and puts and stuff. No, no, and he's no. like, oh, no. So it was put, get, and it was post. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It wasn't. <laughs> yeah. But he changed the name several times. I think I think it's still going to be WebRTC, and people are still going to refer to the technology as a whole as WebRTC. Um, I don't think you know. I think that had enough traction. I mean, there's there's entire like WebRTC expos. They're they're not going to rename them ORTC Expo. I I think people <laughs> will keep referring to the technology as WebRTC. Yeah, we're going to keep calling the library simple WebRTC, um, but it will just support both basically. So um, my guess is WebRTC was pretty complicated if it required a simplification library like your own. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, when I was doing it, um, I hadn't seen anybody do multi-user WebRTC. Mm-hmm. Um, I had only seen people do, you know, kind of peer-to-peer with a single connection. So all I really did was kind of abstract that out into, you know, where you could have multiple connections. Um and yeah, it used to be really messy because it was really poorly and inconsistently implemented, uh, especially getting calls to work between Firefox and Chrome. Uh-huh. When I first got that to work, I was like, I don't know, it was kind of, <laughs> it was a celebratory moment, right? Like, cause it, was a, it was a bunch of stuff that was different between the two implementations. And then they were con- really moving targets as well because it kept changing. You know, since then, uh, the library is now maintained by uh, Philip Henke and Lance Stout on our team. I really haven't done much with it in the last, I don't know, year or so. Mm. But they've been able to, as, as browsers have gotten better, they've just gone and deleted big sections of code that are no longer needed because so much it's just standardized now, right? Yeah, so, um, yeah. <laughs> it it was messy, but uh, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I was kind of surprised that no one else had done it, uh, at least that I was aware of. At the time when I released it. So are there any cool uh, projects out there built on simple WebRTC that you have heard of? Um, yeah, there's, you know, the code share sites. Uh, what, I forget the name of the one I'm trying to think of. Um, where you can basically kind of do live coding together, uh, kind of pairing over the web. There's cool mm. stuff like that. Um, a bunch of people have come up and told me they built stuff with it. Uh, there was one cool example, uh, was a student at, uh, Portland State University who hooked it up to, um, an electron microscope, an electron scanning microscope, and used that to share their microscope with other universities. Um, so they did, because you can support, support multiple videos, um, you know, one of the videos would be the actual results coming out of the, the microscope. And then the other would be the, you know, the person there operating it. So they could kind of work on stuff together, even with a single microscope, uh, different parts of the country or what have you. Um, so it's really cool stuff that people have kind of hacked together. But it, I mean, the thing that it does is like, it makes the basic part so simple that, mm you don't really have to know much about what WebRTC does or how it works to use it. Um, in the same way that Socket.io abstracted WebSockets when it was really poorly implemented. I mean, it's the same idea here. It's like, 
you know, it just irons out the di the differences and gives you a, a dead simple API. Uh, as soon as you try to kind of break from that, it's not going to do everything you want it to. Um, but Simple WebRTC itself, you know, given kind of our approach of building things as modular as we can, it's also comprised of a bunch of little WebRTC modules. So if you go to github.com slash otalk, there's all these little libraries that, that Simple WebRTC just requires and uses that are do various portions of this. Um, we recently just gave the WebRTC name back to the Google folks on NPM because we had one, you know, a portion of it was just that. Right? But How much do they pay you? Oh, nothing. Just, <laughs> just kidding. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> At least on the air, nothing. No, so Otalk is a is an org on GitHub. What's what is this? Is this is different? Um, yeah. So the the idea is that so we we built an app called Talky. Uh, Talky IO. Oh, so this is kind of, and yet okay. Yeah, this is all and yet stuff. So what we did is um, so Talky IO was it started out as my demo page for Simple WebRTC. Uh, I was just trying to get this thing to work with multi-user video. And then, so the way that it works is you go to Taki.io slash, you know, insert anything here. And as long as someone else is at that same URL at the same time, they're in the same conversation. Like you don't have to download anything. You don't have to sign up. You don't have to register. You don't have to be logged in. It's completely anonymous, um, you know, and it's encrypted peer to peer. So it's like conceptually it's so much easier than setting something like google hangouts up right like a lot of people you know futz around with invitations and all this mm -hmm. stuff right so you know meet me at this url at this time is something that people found really useful and so you know we've seen hundreds of thousands of people start using this thing and it's like it's been kind of mind-blowing um what's the performance like on it oh it's it's quite good because i mean once again if you're doing this in smaller groups you can get really nice, high quality video. Um, and you we said did, north, anything north of four before was where you start to get in danger zone. Yeah, it starts to get bad. So then, what we've done is um, we've done a second version of this that actually uses a a video bridge technology, um, and it's called a selective forwarding unit. But the idea is that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily you know encode and decode video in the middle. But what it does is it can kind of it can kind of uh, combine things onto the same peer connection so that you can do larger groups. So we've, we've had, you know, successful calls with like 20 people, um, using our beta version, which is at beta.talkyio. Um, and that's what we're doing. We're actually in the middle of a Kickstarter for that right now, trying to get some more funding to basically add like recording capabilities and some other fun stuff to that. Um, so definitely, you know, go check that out if you're interested in kind of open communication on the web. So, the other piece there is that all the pieces that we're using to build Taki are all individually open sourced. And that's all the stuff that's there in the OTOC libraries. Okay. Um, I was so, just about to ask you is what part of Taki.io is, is open source or if any. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the version that's live right now at Taki.io is using simple WebRTC. Um, the next version, the one at beta.taki.io is using all these various, uh, libraries that are there and the other cool thing about that is that it can interoperate so it uses uh it's a standard called xmpp for messaging underneath which means that you can actually build an alternate service that um that will do uh that you could actually call somebody at you know like a talkie service like you can call from one system to another system which you know would be kind of like being able to call from skype to google hangouts right 
So we need to see, I think, that kind of open federated communication on the web. Um, and these are things we've come to expect from phones for years. Yeah. The fact that I don't th- hey, are you, I'm going to call you. Are you on Verizon or AT&T? You know, like that, that conversation doesn't happen because they federate. Uh, but we're, that's exactly what we're doing on the web right now. So we want to kind of see that go away. Interesting. Well, we like to close the the, uh, the call with some insightful, deep, impactful questions. Oh, and, boy. Uh, so deep. So deep. And, so deep. And, and the first question is, who are, you can have one or many, your programming heroes? Or one hero, many heroes? I, I have I have a few. I think it's hard to pick just one, honestly. Um I don't know. I've always been a fan of, of Lauren uh, Britcher, who uh, who did like Tweety and stuff. He's a designer slash developer, and uh-huh. he just like ships cool stuff like entirely on his own. Is a bit of a unicorn in that way. Uh, you know, I just am blown away that somebody could do that at such a high level. Um, she's certainly not a JavaScript guy, but uh, that's always been like really impressive to me. Um, you know, people like like TJ Holloway Chuck who can just like the amount of volume of of high quality code that he's generated is just mind blowing to me. Um, I would list people like Faraz, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, he's doing some really amazing stuff, uh, really pushing the web forward. Um, and even you know, folks like Guillermo Rauch, he created Socket AO, but like he's also done a bunch of awesome stuff since then. Um, anyway, there's a few to start. There you <laughs> go. We'll get the, those links in the show notes. We always like to link up the, the heroes when we can. Sometimes it's a Wikipedia page. Sometimes it's a GitHub page. Because yeah. uh, so, some heroes are from, like, you know, the 1800s or early 1900s. You, know? <laughs> 1800s. Yeah. Like you go back in the day. The days nice. of yore. To, to, some, you know, to somebody who inspired the web, you know? Yeah. You know, sure. with, with a quote, like uh, JFK or something like that. Just nice. To, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Have we had JFK as a hero? <laughs> no, we have not. But right. uh, Henry think, mentioned I, him in the talk, and that's why I was. I, I did. You're right. You're pulling in a bunch of references. Oh man, that's I just drop them in there. You don't even know. <laughs> it's like, it's it's like, like four even, or five of the show you didn't even recognize. So I didn't expect you to do research like this. We need to do. Like, I'm caught off guard. We're gonna have to have a commentary track on this. <laughs> yeah, that would nice. be cool. <laughs> we uh, we appreciate our guests when they come on the show. So so we have to we have to do that. We'll yeah. Do our research, man. Yeah. So nice, since you're you. since you're such an edger, a bleeding edger, you've got to be looking at some very unique technologies and or projects. So when you have a free weekend or, you know, and yet isn't making you work on the weekend, which I'm sure they probably don't, but in case <laughs> they do, uh, if you had a free weekend and you can choose whatever, what project or what repo or what thing out there is sitting out there for you, like waiting to go play with that you haven't, that you, uh, that's open source you haven't done yet? I keep meaning to get around to playing with React Native a little bit, um, just because it's kind of it's a kind of a cool idea. Um, uh, I, I got to throw in a mention to to for Surge to uh, Surge.sh. I just freaking love those guys. They've they've done some. Uh, they've made this like dead simple deployment platform for uh, just deploying static sites, uh, and I just I just love that too. So I've, I've been using that for all kinds of little pet projects and stuff. Um, Nice tagline, zero BS. Yeah, exactly. It, it's from uh, so Brock Witten, who's one of the people behind that. He kind of helped do the whole phone gap thing. Um, so anyway, they definitely cool group of people there. Um, let's see. I don't know. Like I, I think it's really interesting to use uh, 
like I want to see people do more like physics based stuff in the Dom uh, to get sort of these more interesting drag things around, you know, gravity and those kinds of effects used inside web applications. So um, I've seen people use things like D3 as kind of the math engine and then rendering things with React uh, and kind of using that to, I don't know, to, to get some really interesting effects uh, in terms of interaction effects. Uh, eh, I don't know. There's a few things. Cool. Uh, Jerry, do you want to take a closing question? Anything you got uh, for Henrik? No, man. I'm over here on surge.sh. Just Is that right? <laughs> you probably just deployed something, right? I, I may have. I don't even know. This looks pretty awesome. <laughs> It's kind of cool. I, I really like it. Um, and I, I also, I mean, that's something I reference. I, I, as a trainer, like, that's been really nice to have something like that because one of the first things I do in my workshops and stuff is, like, I have people deploy stuff. Because, yeah. you know, for so long, I think there's been this kind of barrier, like, oh, I'm working on this thing, and then how do I actually get this live? Oh, you call your ops person. And you're like, well, I don't have an ops person. Okay. Uh, you have hosting. Yeah, exactly. So it's, like, it's kind of nice to uh, to be like, hey, just get this out of the way. Um, right. And so, I mean, a little plug here too. I have I have like a set of videos that basically show people how to build apps using ampersand React, and I use Surge for that too. So um, that stuff is at learn.humanjavascript.com. So there's some of that stuff in there too, and a good hour of that is completely free. So you can kind of poke around in there and see see what you think, and at least get your hands on this stuff. Good deal. So, well, Henrik, it's definitely been. Uh... Awesome to have you on the call today. I know that uh, you span so many chasms. We be, In the pre-call, Jared and I were planning for this call. As you can tell, we do plan. Um, <laughs> yeah. We were thinking, can we get it all in one conversation? Should we have you back for, for another? You know, Would you be a... I should a, do a less teacher? things. It's kind of annoying, no, actually. You know, I'm, trying, I'm trying to figure out how to do less. Simplify, man. You got to simplify. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I keep preaching that, and I need to do it in my own life. I guess. <laughs> can, you, can you read that? Do you know it off, offhand, your, uh, what you say about that? What I, oh, the, uh, complexity. the complexity thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, shoot. Can I can I? read it for you if you don't. Why, yeah, why don't you read it if you haven't? All right. It. So to maximize simplicity, this is on the ampersandjs.com uh, oh, yeah. website. So if you don't actively fight for simplicity in software, complexity will win and it will suck. <laughs> exactly. So that, that, that was telling Jared earlier. There's no maybe it will suck or probably it will. It will it suck. It will. It will. So. Complexity always wins, <laughs> keeping man. Keeping things simple. We're always about keeping things simple around here, man. We try, we try. You know, it's 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 hard. It's it's something you really do have to resist the urge to over engineer everything. Yeah, so creeps in. It's something I struggle with still. Well, to the listeners, thank you for listening. To Henrik, thank you so much for taking some time to join us today to talk about everything you're interested in and your heroes. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to have you. Also, thanks to our three awesome sponsors for this show, CodeShip, TopTal, and DreamHost. DreamHost has new VPS options they have us talking about, so check that out if you uh, if you don't mind. DreamHost.com slash changelog is the URL to go to. And with that, fellas, let's say goodbye. See ya. All right, see you later.